At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food, we'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here, in the ordinary, everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness and grace. Okay, so what is, we've been talking food in, in this series called Soul Food, what is one of the most satisfying meals that you've ever had? Think about it. One of the most satisfying eating experiences in your life. Maybe it was as simple as a holiday family spread, you know, with everything on the buffet or the table and you got to to pick and enjoy what it is that you loved. Maybe it was an amazing birthday or an anniversary and you went on some, I don't know, maybe a cruise. Maybe it was a great experience that you had then. Perhaps you went to a restaurant and ate from like a world-class chef for a really cool experience. Or maybe you just think about somebody in your life who really loves you, like your grandma maybe, and you think back to something your grandma made and how satisfying that was. I'll tell you one of my experiences. I'm a little bit of a foodie. I like food. In May of 2009, I had the really cool experience of um, visiting northern Italy. And I actually stayed with a missionary family in northern Italy. They were uh, second-generation church planters outside of uh, Milan. Their their church was in one of the suburbs of Milan. And... uh, There were a lot of reasons that it was amazing. I mean, it's Italy, right? Who's been to Italy before? Show show of hands. Okay, we need to get more of you on a mission trip. No, just kidding. Um, But but it was so cool to spend some time with brothers and sisters in Christ who were in a different context, a different culture, and um, most of the church members didn't speak English, and I don't speak Italian except ciao. (laughs) So... You know, it was an interesting experience, but man, so good for my heart to see, right, that, that God is at work in other places around the world and that, that, uh, that, he, that I have brothers and sisters in Christ, like all across the globe. That was so cool to me. Now, you think Italy, you think food, and for good reason. Now, most of the food that I ate that week was not hot. It was not high-class cuisine. It was just made with a lot of chaos and love and noise. And as the Italians in the room and, and others of us who, who know this, it like, tastes better when it's a little chaotic and, and made with love, right? That's why grandma's food, if you had a loving grandma, it always tasted so good. And so uh, I remember during that, that week, every morning, my host mom, Nina, made this amazing Italian coffee drink of some kind. And the truth is, I didn't even like coffee then, but it tasted so good. I, I can't imagine how much sugar I had in it. Um, but but I, I loved it because it was in Italy. Of course, you're supposed to drink what, what your host mom gives you and makes for you. And then I remember visiting these open-air markets. And then we went to like downtown Milan and it's like, so historic. We don't even have a concept for that here. And we ate the delicacies of Milan, and it was, like, amazing. And then we had these afternoon snacks, except that they were more like meals. It was like a full-on afternoon meal. And then later in the evening, 
we'd sit on this beautiful patio, side patio next to their house, and we'd, we'd have these very long, slow, generous, ample meals. Carb loading. <laughs> so good, right? Just made with a lot of love. All the Italian goodness and love you could think of. And then, because it was very good exercise, most nights they said, well, let's stretch our legs. Let's, let's go for a walk. And, and I thought, well, that's, we should probably do that more here. It was really good. The catch is, I learned the first day that we ended up at a gelato shop every night. So, like, every night after we've already consumed so much food, we had gelato. And, and it, was a good, it was a good week. I was satisfied. I was full. I was happy. Can't you picture that? You've had an experience like that. That's one of the effects of a large and delicious meal and sometimes a nap, too. And I think one of the reasons that God has done it this way, that food isn't just fuel, you know, we're not robots who just require some type of uh, fuel to, to make us go, but he wants us to learn about how he satisfies us. He satisfies both the, the, the tangible part of us and the intangible part of us. And I'm reminded that David wrote a lot about this in Psalm. Psalm 63, 5, I found this week. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And in Psalm 107, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul, he fills up with good things. So he's using this connection between our bodies and hunger and our souls. Which is good, because we've been going through this throughout the Gospel of Luke, and we've been looking at these very important missional events where Jesus is either at a meal or he's providing a meal for, for people, as we've just read this morning. And he's, he's really trying to communicate something profound about himself, about his mission, his identity, and our calling as his disciples. And so, the meal that I've read, the, the meal that we're joining us, that, that we're joining Jesus at this morning in Luke 9, is actually probably his, fa- his most famous meal, I would say. I mean, there were a lot of people there. A lot of people knew about it. And yet, it, it wasn't one that was anticipated. It wasn't expected because nobody was planning on having it with Jesus except maybe his 12 closest followers. But the lesson here is important because the unplanned and surprising nature of this meal shows us a God who is completely satisfying for anyone who comes to him. But as always, there's a flip side to it. There's a question, a tension that that we feel when we hear that. Is God enough for me? Is he enough to satisfy what's, what's, what's deep down in my heart, in my soul? Or do I have to go grocery shopping, so to speak, in other places and look for satisfaction elsewhere? The good news that we're going to see as we walk through Luke 9 is that Jesus is enough to fully satisfy everyone who comes to him. Everyone who comes to him is satisfied. He is sufficient to fill up our souls to capacity in the same way that a really good meal fills up our bellies. And so let's work through these verses together. Let's dig in. Verse 10, we read that on their return, the apostles told him what they had done. So they just got back from somewhere. And if you back up to verses 1 and 2, we're we're reminded that Jesus sent them out on a missions trip, so to speak. 
He empowered them. He gave them authority, even over dominic, dominion, uh, or demonic uh, dominion and, and, and power to heal people. And he gave them the instruction, proclaim the kingdom of God. And so that's what they did. And now they're coming back and they're giving a report to Jesus about what happened. And verse 10 continues that he took them and withdrew. So they were going to this place near Bethsaida, following an intense season of ministry. It was Jesus' heart to, to pull those people and to say, let's, let's talk. Let's recharge our batteries. Let's get away. Now, this is not a major theme in the text, but it is worth noting that this is yet another example of this rhythm that Jesus has of engagement and withdrawal to be with God. Regularly engaged people. He taught, he healed, he he poured himself out, physically tired, and then he would withdraw to be with God in quiet. I've talked about the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, uh, in, in the past couple of years, but John Mark Comer, the author, does an amazing job of, of walking out in his silence and solitude chapter what it looked like in the life of Jesus and what, as his followers, it's to look like for us. I, I'd love for you to, to, to read that and to make that a rhythm for yourself because it is an important rhythm, right? Do you have that? Do you have a regular time where you withdraw to be with God? It was Dallas Willard who wrote that if you don't come apart for a while, you will come apart after a while. That's true. A break is good and helpful. My family went up north last weekend. It was a good good thing to, to leave behind kind of the normal aspects of life and to just spend some time together in a cabin. So vacation is good. A meal with really good friends is good and restorative to us. An unscheduled weekend is really good. We all need those. We need to practice those things. But that doesn't necessarily fill up the, the soul in the way that God fills up the soul. And if you're missing the opportunity to be refilled and refreshed by him, don't. It's a, a rhythm that Jesus practiced. It's a rhythm that Jesus wants for you. I mean, think about him as the good shepherd. Psalm 23 talks about him restoring our souls. And he leads us to a, a very lush, luxurious green pasture from which we sheep can eat. He leads us beside waters of rest. As we let him guide us, as we practice this rhythm, he allows our souls to be filled and refreshed. That is his heart for us. That's what his heart was for the disciples, right? That's why he took them away on, on retreat. But that's not actually what happened. What happened was the crowds learned of it. Verse 11 tells us that. They said, hey, Jesus is going there. Let's go. Now, sidebar. The gospel gives us a glimpse into the life and the ministry of Jesus, right? True stories. That's what we believe. True stories about what happened. It's just a sliver, though, of what happened. We don't know it all. But behind the historical narrative, you know, that we can read, he said this, he went here, this is what happened. Behind the historical narrative is always a spiritual reality. It's a story that the Holy Spirit is inviting us to pay attention to, to say, I think there's more going on here than just what I read on the pages. 
And so specifically, I think that this account, the feeding of the 5,000, which like, who doesn't love this story? Like, we've loved it since we were kids. We've told it to our kids. But I think that this account shows us a lot more about Jesus's identity and his intentions for disciples as we pay attention. So keep that in mind as we dig in. So Jesus's popularity is growing. The crowds flocked to him. They followed him. The disciples had just gotten back from preaching. Maybe there were more crowds because of the the effective witness of the disciples in, in their ministry. But people found out where he was. And the disciples were tired. I mean, probably Jesus was tired too, but, but for sure we know that they were tired and in need of rest. But what was the response of Jesus even after they had all poured out and poured out and poured out? The text tells us he welcomed them. He taught them. He healed them. It was this continued engagement, even though they really, really wanted a break. In the parallel passage in Mark 6, the gospel writer Mark says that Jesus had compassion. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. I think it's interesting that Luke, and again, this fits in with our our soul food series, I think it's interesting that Luke uh, talks about that he is welcoming them. There's that hospitality, that table language again that we see throughout the gospel of Luke. And the ministry of Jesus always involved speaking truth to people. He must have been a pretty swell guy to be around because lots of people flocked to him. Kids loved him. He was probably great to be around. And yet, he never missed an opportunity to speak truth, not just to help them, but to speak truth, to to proclaim his kingdom, to to speak to them a reality that, that they didn't know yet even while he met their needs and he extended mercy to them. And so here's one of the truths that we see in the text about Jesus here. He's never too tired to welcome those who seek him. And there are a lot of people who are seeking him. He's never too tired to welcome them. This past week, for for many students and teachers, was spring break week. And on Tuesday, uh, my life group gathered, and we were sitting around my dining room table and, and talking. And I've got a couple teachers in my life group. And, and there was a little conversation around, oh, how welcome the break was. You know, you can, like, get your doctor's appointments done, and you can sleep in, and all this stuff that, that you just, teachers can't normally do. And I think that's a little bit of what the disciples were hoping for, a little bit of a spring break, as it were, to have a break from the crowds and just to be with Jesus, just to hang out with him, just the 13 of them. But that didn't happen, right? Jesus took them on a getaway to be refreshed, and and it didn't actually happen. So imagine, imagine if on that prior Friday, two Fridays ago, the kids have just left the classroom, left the school, gotten on the bus, gotten in their parents' cars, walked home, whatever, Teachers breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, okay, finally, I get a, I get a break. And then the bell rings. And there, mid to late afternoon, all of a sudden, students keep coming back in the doors. And you either say, if you're a teacher, you either say it or you feel it. You, might, you probably say it. What are you doing here? Go home. I'm not responsible for you. You're supposed to be at home. I'm supposed to have a take, take a break, right? Get out. I love you, but get out. I, I, we, we just need some time apart. That's probably what the disciples were feeling like as the crowds stream in, stream in, stream in to this, to this uh, desolate place that they had picked. If you were a teacher, you would have felt crestfallen and frustrated and 
agitated. And so that's likely what the disciples felt here. But you see at the end of verse 11, what's Jesus' posture to them? He's probably tired too. He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So he's opened himself up. Ministry has started up again. And he teaches them about God's kingdom. I think there are a couple of opportunities for for application, at least there were for me in my preparation this week from from this very passage. First is a check of what we believe about God. And I speak to you as a sinful man preaching to sinful men and women. I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes the struggles, the sins, the, the hiccups, the rebellion, the confession, repentance cycle that I feel over and over and over and over and over and over again, I get tired of taking it to Jesus. I feel like I've already kind of had this conversation with him, you know, a few million times. And he's probably tired of hearing from me. He's tired of hearing the same thing. Some of you are nodding. Maybe you can appreciate that. It's the same old struggle, the same old sin, failure. He's just done. And yet, friends, be encouraged from this text. That's not the Jesus we see. He's tired. He's worn out. He truly knows what's in the hearts of the people who are coming. Are they coming for, to get something from him? Are they coming to see a cool miracle? Are they coming because they really like him? But, but the truth is, Jesus doesn't grow tired of ministering to us. He doesn't grow reluctant to show us grace, to extend us grace and help in our time of need. He continues to welcome us. He continues to speak and teach us through his word He continues to heal us, both on the tangible and the intangible parts of us. He heals us. Praise God for such grace. Amen? Amen. Secondly, just as Jesus' ministry here is welcoming, proclaiming, and demonstrating, that gives us a bit of a model as his disciples, a model to emulate Do you and I speak the good news of the gospel when we encounter hurt and brokenness in ourselves or or with others? And I'm not talking about slapping a Jesus Band-Aid on it, you know, a Band-Aid with a cross on it that says, God bless you, everything works out for good. I'm not talking about that. But people don't need your advice. They don't need a pithy saying. They need the gospel. They just need the gospel. They need to be reminded of the truth that Scripture tells us about God and who He is and what He's up to and what His plans are. And we don't know. We don't know how it all plays out. But people need the gospel. And, you know, for us, growing as a disciple in Jesus means that we take on, that we adopt the the eyes of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the hands and the feet. We go the places that He went. We do the things that he do. We ask ourselves, how would Jesus act in Oakland County, 2022? If he were in my shoes, what would Jesus do? That is part of the process of growing as a disciple. 
my life group recently had the opportunity to collectively bless someone who has some real physical challenges. We learned about them, and we said, okay, well, let's actually do something about it. Let's, let's love on this person. Let's help. Let's bless them. And so we pitched in, and we were able to gift this individual several hundred dollars toward the cost of some, some of the physical rehabilitation, which was a, a real joy for us. But it was not a joy to write the check, right? That's a suburban thing. That's an easy thing to do. Just write a check. But in reality, for us to live it out, to befriend this person, to pray for, to encourage, to spend time with, to help, to love, I believe that is the way of Jesus. And if Jesus is so important to you, then how does the way you live your life reflect the values of his kingdom? That's a legit question that we have to wrestle with. As the text continues, though, we we see a problem. A problem that that the disciples think they have a solution to. The day is wearing on. Time has a way of doing that. And Jesus continued his ministry. And we know from the text that they're in a desolate place. There are some surrounding villages or countryside where they can maybe get some accommodations and some food. The text tells us that. But it was not where they really were. And so, a very practical, logical solution of the disciples that you and I would probably make is like, okay, it's time. This has been fun. But now you go. Go and and get get your stuff that you need. Send them away. The problem is Jesus wasn't done with his ministry, and there was a lesson that he was still teaching, and primarily he was teaching it to the disciples. He challenged the 12. You give them something to eat. Verse 13 tells us that. You do it. You give them something to eat. Remember that spiritual backstory? Commentator David Garland points this out. I'll put it up on the screen. Even in a deserted place, the crowds could find provisions. And so this implies that the miracle of the feeding is not done primarily to satisfy a physical need. It manifests Jesus' power and hospitality. Hey, there's that word again. There's that table fellowship language of Jesus welcoming. Now remember, what, what just happened? The disciples just got back from their mission trip. And verse 1 of of uh, Luke 9 tells us Jesus gave them power and authority. He also gave very specific instructions. He said, don't take a staff, don't take a bag, don't take bread, don't take money, and so on. He says, I'm going to provide for you. You have power, I have provision. Watch it play out. That's what he tells them. And now they're getting back from that. And I don't know, maybe... Maybe this is a day later, maybe it's a week, I don't know how much time had passed, but, but they're as forgetful as we are, friends, right? They forgot that God had just done this, despite just doing this for them. They forgot, and they said, there's a lot of people and we don't have enough. Well, they started out their trip a few verses earlier having nothing, and yet God provided for them for however long they were gone. So Jesus gives them a lesson about his identity and their need of him. Jesus is patient, and he says, okay, have the people sit down. Break them up into groups and have them sit down. Now, the word that we read in English, sit down, in the Greek, this is really cool, I found it this week, 
is the idea of reclining as one in that culture would customarily do at a meal. Again, table language here, all through Luke. I love it. And I think what's amazing is that um, despite the fact that they're in a desolate place, despite the fact that there are no tables or sofas or chairs or anything that you would normally have, Jesus is saying, uh, I'm going to invite you to my table. I'm going to prepare a meal for you. You are welcome at my table. Why don't you just sit back? Don't just sit there. Just recline. Enjoy what I'm doing. Participate in it. That is so great about Jesus. We would do well. I mean, physically speaking, we would do well, not, not necessarily to recline at the table, but to, to recognize when we see food on the table, whether you cooked it or whether somebody else did, or I mean, to, to slow down and recognize this is God's good provision. This is his good hand on this table to be thankful, to slow down in light of that. And I'm reminded, Scripture tells us about a whole bunch of other meals that God miraculously provided on a very large scale. The Israelites didn't have much to eat when they were walking around the wilderness, but God gave them their daily bread, manna, manna from heaven. That's grace right there. The same crew needed some meat, so at some point, Numbers 11 tells us that God provided quail, and in 2 Kings, we can read how Elisha's faith is what um, led to God feeding about 100 men with just a, a handful of loaves of bread. I mean, we have this, this track record of God. It's not a big deal for him to, to feed a lot of people. And then this one hasn't happened yet, but this is my favorite. God has promised someday to set an epic, and I mean epic, table at the end of the age, the great messianic banquet. And I love it so much that I want to put this on the screen. Isaiah foretold. Just let your taste buds and your minds go to this. Isaiah wrote, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Whew! I'm going to be there. I've got a seat at the table. I cannot wait. That is going to be a meal like none other that satisfies in all the best ways. So Jesus' identity, he's showing us here in Luke, but through the track record of Scripture, is really, I'm a powerful provider. He's teaching his disciples, you don't think you have enough because you don't know who I am. You don't know who you're connected to. Guys, Jesus is never too powerless to provide for all who need him. That's the truth from our text. He's never too powerless. Some of you may know the, the prayer life and the faith of George Mueller. George Mueller lived in the 1800s, and he felt a deep conviction to start orphanages for children. And George Mueller lived in a, a place of faith and dependency that many of us just can't even scratch the surface. It's amazing to read about the ministry and the way that God provided for George and his and his uh, orphans. And there's a story of, of one day, the 300 children that he had in his charge were dressed. They were ready for the day, ready to go off to school, and yet there was no breakfast. And so George said, okay, let's sit down. Sit down at the table. And with 300 children and George seated at these dining tables, George thanked God for the food. 
except there wasn't food, right? So he's thanking God in advance. He's demonstrating his faith. And the true story goes on that not long after, a knock at the table, a knock at the door, and it was a baker who said, you know, I just felt so compelled to bake fresh bread for your students. Let me go get it. And literally, moments later, a milk wagon broke down just outside the front door, providing milk for thirsty children. I mean, that is the power of God's kindness and provision on 300 needy young people. He's never too powerless to provide physically and spiritually. But I'm going to call out, because maybe you've never seen it. I had not seen it. I love this story. I love reading it to my kids. But I had never seen this question that just dangles in the text before us. The question is, who is Jesus? And you say, well, I don't see that in there. Well, go back one verse. One verse before, you have Herod. Verse 9, Herod said, John, that's John the baptizer, I beheaded. So he chopped John's head off. So it can't be John. Who is this about whom I hear such things? Who is Jesus? And if you skip to the very end after this story, Jesus himself poses the question to his apostles and he says, who do you say that I am? Isn't that something? Herod is asking, who is Jesus? Jesus is asking to his apostles, who am I? That's no coincidence that right shoehorned here in the middle is a picture of Jesus' identity. He's actually wanting to convey something to his disciples and to us about who he is. That's amazing. And so who is Jesus to you? Is he a myth? Is he a really good religious man who did some amazing things that we read about? Are you unsure? Is he your king? Is he your Lord, your master, the one who satisfies your soul? Each of us has all sorts of things that we believe and tell ourselves about God. Some of them are true. A whole bunch of them aren't. Our problems, our hopes and expectations in life, our family of origin, our our experiences, our, our need for acceptance, all these things shape us, right? They shape our experience of ourselves and our experience of God and what we project on Him. Along with uh, a few other guys on Thursday morning in my discipleship huddle, we've been going through a book which requires us to read, to journal, to pray through, to, to practice some soul training. And then we get together on Thursday morning and we've been trying to... to um, discover and correct some narratives that we have about God and who He is. It's best done in community, right? And so as we, as we share in our time together, what we're trying to do is we're seeking to align our beliefs of who God is with the truth of what we see Jesus knowing and loving God. So like, is there a gap? So Jesus knew God better than anybody else. He loved God better than anybody else. And is there a gap between what I believe about God and what Jesus says about God? And so that's been the process, which is a little painful. I've had to correct some things. And it's left me with a question that I pose to you. Is, does God satisfy your soul? I mean, do you, do you look elsewhere for him to provide everything that you need? 
Are there, are there some things in your, your mind, your heart, the way that you operate that probably needs to change? Because at least for me, I mean, it's had to begin with some humility and honesty with some of these dudes. Repentance, right belief that, that the gospel is actually true, that the way that God made the world is best and not my way, that, that there is grace. It's had to change my mind so that I see him as sufficient and completely powerful and good. Jesus is neither too tired to welcome those who seek him. He's also not too powerless to provide for all who need him. But lastly, we see that he is never too limited to satisfy all who hunger for him. And so, with the multitude reclined, as we jump back into the text, the multitude is reclined. They're they're waiting. Jesus blesses the food. And so, with the same divine voice that spoke the universe into existence, he holds up this meager these couple meager ingredients, and he turns it into an all-satisfying feast. That's amazing. Luke writes how Jesus gave the food to the disciples to set before the people. And again, a, a nerdy Greek thing that I found this week, but the idea of that he gave carries the idea of something that happened in the past and carries into the future. Which makes sense in this instance, right? The disciples practically, somehow baskets showed up on the scene. So the disciples have baskets and and they're being filled with baskets and they're taking them and they're emptying them with the groups of people. I mean, there's thousands of people and it takes a while. And then they come back and Jesus fills it up and they go back out and they're setting it before the people. There's this constancy of Jesus is giving and he's giving, and he's multiplying, and he's doing it, this miracle, on and on and on, and giving and giving and giving and more giving until everyone is satisfied. And I love, I just love that at the end of the day, there were 12 baskets left. Also not coincidence where the disciples had just said, we don't have enough to feed everybody, and now Jesus provides some extra for each one of them. If you've been following along with Tim Chester's book, A Meal with Jesus, some of our life groups are going through this. Mine is. Some of you picked this up or downloaded it at the beginning of our series. It mirrors these passages that we're walking through in this series, and he's so much better than me, so just read him. But... I want to just read. I'll put it up on the screen here because I think that, that um, I love his idea of the theology of leftovers. So hear this. Jesus is preparing the disciples for his absence, right? The day is coming when he will give them, as he gives us, another impossible task to proclaim repentance and forgiveness to all nations. What can we do? Jesus asks us what resources we have. He asks us to have faith, That day, the disciples took home 12 baskets full of leftover food. The impossible task was not only completed, but it was over-completed. And those 12 disciples are now 2 billion disciples and counting. The disciples thought that their five loaves were a finite resource that couldn't be shared. But 5,000 people later, and they still had 12 baskets full of bread. 
Jesus has given us himself so that we can share him with everyone who has need. Do we believe that he is enough? Do we believe lies that he's not enough to satisfy, that he's not glorious and sufficient? Because if we do, then that's going to keep us from sharing with other people. That's the nature of how this works. If we haven't experienced it for ourselves, this wondrous truth, then we're not going to pass it on to other people. As we finish our spiritual feast this morning from Luke 9, Jesus has fed us as well today. I, I hope, I pray that you're increasingly hungry for him and for the fullness that he supplies to you. I hope you keep coming back to him over and over again because he continues to give. If you have not experienced this internal satisfaction of your soul, I wonder if we could talk this morning after we're done, or maybe this week, or maybe there's someone here that you trust that you could talk to. I mean, I'd, I'd love for you to see how Jesus has satisfied my soul. I'm still in process. I'd love to show you how Jesus himself calls himself my words, but uh, a drink that fully satisfies and quenches the thirst of your souls. He's the living water. If you have trusted Jesus, then how are you giving his grace to others? How are you proclaiming this to others? Don't live in a theology of hoarding. There's plenty to go around. Grace upon grace. You know, I don't think that Jesus only wanted to fill people's bellies that day. Though he cared about people and their physical needs, the hunger of the crowds. And I don't even think that the miracle that day was primarily done for the multitudes, though they surely were recipients of his power and his provision. I believe that on the mind of Jesus that day, and this was new to me this week, I've read this passage so many times, I think on the heart of Jesus was his disciples. And I'm going to be so bold as to lump us in with them. Because I think, I believe that Jesus even knew that on April 3rd, over 2,000 years later, here we would be learning, trying to understand what was he teaching the crowds, what was he teaching his disciples. What's he trying to prove, to teach, to help us understand from this text today? Well, number one is his identity that Jesus is more than enough. He's the provider of all satisfying grace, forgiveness, help. He provides what we truly need. But secondly, that he's trying to communicate to us our calling as his disciples. If we are satisfied in Jesus and him as our Savior and our Lord, then we demonstrate his kingdom. We share the hospitality of Jesus to who God's placed in our lives. And that's one of the reasons that we put this card on a seat near you. It's not meant to end up in the recycling bin, and it's also not meant to just end up on your bulletin board or your fridge at home. Now, I understand that Easter, while it's a time that, that people are usually a little bit more open to, to walking through the doors of a church, you're supposed to get dressed up and look nice and go to church, right? They might be open to that. 
but I don't know your neighbors, I don't know your coworkers, I don't know your family members like you do. That may be too big of a stretch. Maybe Easter is, is too big of an initial ask. So what if you set a table and you invited them to your home? You can cook some food you love or DoorDash some food you love, but what, what about just trying to make some space in your schedule to welcome people? You don't have to full-on preach Luke 9 to them, but if he's satisfied you, then speak of his goodness. Don't hoard it. Share it. That's our calling as disciples every day to know the identity of Jesus, be assured of that, and to lean in the eyes, the heart, the mind, the hands and the feet of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we do thank you. We believe that you provided not only for the multitudes that day, and we are challenged by it, but we thank you more importantly, oh, so much more importantly, for how you provided us through the cross. Thank you that that has changed everything for me. I pray that these dear people would also be affirmed of that as well in their life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.